um, maybe a text you know pretty well as well. And I want to connect it to this idea of story and um, connect it to what we've been talking about with God making all things new. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Um, and I think when, when I'm done talking, if I have this right, then we're going to go straight into some time of prayer together just to reflect on the weekend. So corporate prayer, and we'll spend about 15 minutes. Um, and I think what I'm going to do is just read some biblical text for your reflection, for you to be able to pray for yourself as well as your church about what does this look like when we, when we leave here, when we go back. And so we want to spend some time uh, just in the presence of the Lord, in the posture of prayer, uh, to allow some of this stuff to sink in, allow Him to speak to us once again. So before we get into all that, let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful once again to be able to to hear from Your Word that You've given to us, and so we pray that You would speak, and we pray that You would begin to connect some dots together for us, so this weekend might be a launching pad uh, for understanding who You are and what You're doing in the world in a fresh and new way, and Uh, understanding how we fit into what you're doing in a fresh and new way. So, Father, we want to be changed tonight. We want to go back um, in the love that you have for us and the calling that you have for us to operate in that in such a way that we can say we really do understand the Scriptures and we understand who you are and we understand where we're headed. So, Father, as we... Learn from your word yet again. We pray that once again you would give us ears to hear what you have to say, eyes to see what you're doing in the text, and that your spirit would be in us transforming our hearts so that we might be just a little bit more like Jesus as a result of having spent some time together with you. And we ask this in that great name of Jesus. Amen. So here's um, a reminder this weekend's big idea. Uh, is that God calls, equips, and encourages us to pursue all of life as ministry and His mission to make all things new. And in that uh, first session that we have, we talked about the the story of Scripture and that it is one story. And God has always been on this mission to make all things new, all the way from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21 and 22. That's what He's been doing. And this is the story that we are now connected to. And within that mission, He created humanity to join Him in that mission. And there's a purpose that we have to rule over the earth to fill the earth and multiply, and to work the ground. And then we looked at uh, Luke 24, and we saw how everything, just like the Mississippi River, all those tributaries, they run right through the Mississippi River on into the ocean. Everything that, that purpose for humanity and all of creation runs right through Jesus and on into us, his church, his people, so that we are called in our ministry to continue the mission of Jesus. In order to do that, it means we understand the scriptures. Not that we just have an intellectual assent to what is there and we can name what is there and how the story connects to Jesus and we can see him at work out there, but we know how it, we are at work with him and he's at work in us. So that amazing statement that Jesus makes or that Luke makes about Jesus, that Jesus then opened their mind to understand the scriptures. Not only said that he must suffer and die, but also that forgiveness and repentance will be preached in his name, beginning from Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. And if you haven't realized this, we're not in Jerusalem, we're not in Judea, we're not in Samaria. Here we are actually at the ends of the earth. So 2,000 years later, you being here as believers in Christ by the power of the preached gospel, you're an embodiment of the faithfulness of God through those ages of people responding to that. And now here we stand because of the faithfulness of God's people and God's faithfulness to his word and his mission in the world to reach the ends of the earth, and that is us. This afternoon we did a little bit of a workshop. Uh, We just listed all the activities that we might do in a day, and we looked at that in order to see, do we see these activities as ministry or not? And why might that be the case? And we had a good conversation, and then we asked, so why is it that we sometimes can't connect that list of things that we're going to do to what God is doing in the world? I think part of that is we don't know who we are. So we asked the question, why do we exist? And in order to answer that question, we have to be honest with ourselves about why we really believe deep down we exist. And if there's any sort of lie that has crept in that, we've got to remove the lie and replace it with the truth of who we are in Christ. And just so you know, you probably haven't finished that journey. And by probably, I mean that you haven't at all. This is a journey that will always be going. And so I had a couple of wonderful conversations with people uh, this afternoon and on into the evening. 
And one of the things that I want to put out there is, this is not a one-time deal where you kind of figure this out and you're done. This is a lifetime of progress, of understanding the scriptures continually more and more as you walk more and more in the fullness of the understanding of the scriptures. It's not you didn't understand anything before and now you understand everything. It's you understood it pretty well and now you understand it maybe a little better and tomorrow a little better. This thing is a progression over time. So often when we come to God, we want to we be in his presence and then leave and now we've got everything perfected. Well, it's not about perfection, this side of resurrection, it's about direction. So are we headed in the right direction? And so I hope that you've begun to, to think about who God has created you to be uniquely within this story and how you connect to that with all the activities you have to do with all the people that you meet with during the day. How is it that that part of your life is part of the mission of God and therefore a part of his ministry that he has called you to? So we've talked about, he calls us to, Jesus calls us to mission with him. He equips us for that ministry, is what we're going to talk about tonight. And tomorrow, we're going to talk about how he encourages us in this ministry that he has. So look at 2 Timothy 2, or 2 Timothy 3. This is a text that you've probably heard before, maybe even memorized it in some translation. Anybody memorize 2 Timothy 3.16? I'm not going to make you quote it if you raise your hand, so you can raise your hand, and even if you're lying, it's sort of okay. God knows, but he'll bring all that. It talks about Scripture being God-breathed and, and, and all these things. I wanna, what I want to show you simply tonight is there's a lot there, but I simply want to connect this text and what Paul's saying about the Scriptures to how he equips us for the mission. And one of the things I want to draw out is how important the concept of story is. Because if we keep reading, something emerges from the text that realizes there's not just this one true story out there, there's also a bunch of false narratives. And, and sometimes we mix them together, and, and I think the text calls these myths or mythologies that we believe. And when we believe the wrong narrative, we start to do the wrong ministry for the wrong person. Our acts of service to God become acts of service to someone or something else. And so the continual thing, one of the things I loved about the song that we sang where we had the echo of, is he worthy? He is. Uh, it said, uh, is this good? It is. And is it good to remind ourselves of this, that a new creation is coming? And the, the response from God's people is, it is. And, and I think what, I, what we're going to see tonight is, we constantly need to be reminding ourselves of the one true story because there's a lot of false stories out there. There's a lot of false narratives out there. And so I want to draw that out and talk about the implications. And I want to label a few myths that we are tempted to believe, in particular about the work that we've been given to every day. Whether you're a student, you're at home, or you're in an office somewhere, there's work that you've been given every day. And there are several myths that as Christians, we are tempted to believe. I want to label them. I want to call them false, impoverished, and then I want to label what is true about our work in Christ. In order that, we might be able to take a step in the direction of pursuing all of life as ministry. So listen with me, read along with me, 2 Timothy 3, we're going to start in verse 10. And in the context, uh, Paul has been talking about those who are leading people astray from the truth, or leading them away from the truth, into godlessness. Uh, and then he contrasts that with... Paul and his relationship with the, his son in the faith, Timothy. So he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, contrary to those who are, have been falling away from the faith and the truth, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. In other words, hey, Timothy, you know me. You know, you've been with me through many, through many of these things. If, if you were to go back and read Acts, you would see that, that Paul picks up Timothy along the way, and Timothy travels with him, doing a lot of his ministry together. That's why when you read some of Paul's letters, guess who writes them with Paul? Timothy does. And so Timothy is this, not only a son in the faith, but a true partner in ministry with Paul. And he's saying, you've been there with me, you've seen it, and you too have endured in the faith just like I have. And you've seen the Lord rescue me from all these things. So in verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
bad things are going to come your way, while evil people and impostors will go on, go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. If you don't know Timothy's story, when we meet him in Acts, he's already had good teaching. Paul is not preach and then Timothy is converted, he already knows the gospel and believes the gospel because of his mother and his grandmother have taught him. They've raised him in the faith. And so he believes. And so he's saying, remember, from childhood you have received this from your parents. Not only remember the gospel, remember those from whom you learned it. And remember that they made you wise for salvation. In contrast to the false lies that other people are being deceived by. And so here's the verse that you may have memorized or at least heard before. That is verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We usually stop there, right? So, so we stop there and we ask this, this question, which is a really good question to ask. What does it mean for scripture to be God-breathed? What are the mechanics of that? Oh, scripture appeared. Well, what does it mean? Did, did, did God say it directly? Did, did, the, did the biblical authors go in a trance and like go out of their minds, lose themselves, and all of a sudden they're writing? They're like, why is my hand moving? Is that what happened there? And then they wake up and they're like, look at this thing I wrote. This must be the Bible. I have no idea what happened. There's a whole conversation about this dictation theory and all those sort of things. I'm going to skip over that and just say this, the source of the scriptures is God. And what I want to focus on is what Paul actually articulates and expounds in this text. And that is not exactly how God breathed it out, but rather for what purpose. And this is what he says in verse 16. All scriptures is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God, the servant of God, the person of God may be competent equipped for every good work. Now here's the big idea for tonight. It's really long and complicated, so you've got to focus, okay? Here it is. God equips us for every good work. Maybe I need to say it again. You may not have caught it. God equips us for every good work. And because this might be a familiar text, you kind of run past it, but we run past the every part. It's not a few good works, some good works, every good work that we have. And I think this is part of all of life being ministry, is he equips you for everything that you were called to and sent to. He equips you through the teaching and preaching of the scriptures, through the reading of the scriptures, through the knowledge of his story. He equips you to do everything for good for him. So I simply want to unpack that tonight and say, how does it happen? And I think it happens in exactly the way he says it. He says, Scripture teaches, it reproves, it corrects, and it trains in righteousness so that you might be competent, equipped for every good work. This translation is competent. You might have a translation that says, so that the person of God might be complete. Complete, not lacking in anything to do good works. I'm going to go on into chapter 4, and I want to show you how story is a part of this. Part of this. So, Paul's writing to Timothy, who's going to be a preacher of the word. He says, so I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Pastor David, preach the word. Right? Why do you preach the word? Because it's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So the people of God might be equipped for every good work. This is why I said those who are teaching the scriptures, yes, they are in the ministry, but not the only ministry. They're in the equipping ministry. So he tells Timothy, do you see this word from God that we have? It's useful for these things. So preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Shockingly, you know what Timothy's job is when he teaches the scriptures? The exact purpose for why the scriptures exist. To teach, reprove, rebuke, and correct, and train in righteousness. And he's supposed to do it with patience. I had a few conversations today, uh, and you people aren't patient with yourselves. You're not patient with yourselves. I get impatient as a teacher sometimes that you don't learn the things that I teach you. 
You guys have done a great job this weekend, so don't worry about that. But you're not patient with yourselves. You expect that just to, to come one time, listen to the word, and then the next day you don't get it and you're frustrated with yourself. The good news is you have teachers, I believe, who are patient with you. You remember what I told you about Jesus when he was walking uh, with the two, two men and then he meets with the disciples and they still don't get it. He appears to them and says, peace to you, and they're startled and frightened. Do you remember what Jesus did? Did he get angry with them and rebuke them? No. He said, remember, I told you these things while I was still with you. Before I was crucified and before I was risen, that these things had to happen to you. But let me walk you through the scriptures again. Let me show it to you again. And Pastor David's job and the other teachers in this church, their job is to simply every week walk you back through the scriptures. And so they teach with patience. Why? Verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I want to hear what I want to hear, and I'm going to get people to say that to me. And will turn away from listening to the truth, and here's the key. And what are they going to wander off to? Wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This word myth means a story, right? You've read some Greek mythology, probably some Roman mythology. All these sort of things. There are ancient Near Eastern narratives that go way back that have different stories for creation, different stories for who God is, different stories for, for who we are. He says they will go off to those myths because they want to hear them. They want to hear something else other than the mission that God has called you to. And yet this is the purpose for which humanity has created. And so you have to combat these mythologies that are there. Now here's the thing. These mythologies, this word is only used a few times in the New Testament. It's used a couple other times in the pastoral letters to Timothy and to Titus. And it's used by Peter. Do you know where these mythologies that he wants to combat? Do you know the text that they come out of? They come out of the Bible. The scary part about what Paul is saying is, if we can, is that we can put the scriptures together in a way that we take God's word and turn it into our own. And so we will gather people not to teach us from a different text, but we will gather people to teach us something from the text that we want to hear to change it. What do I mean by that? Turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 11. I want to show you something in Mark 11 and then in Mark 12. And here's what Jesus is saying. You created a myth. You created a false narrative about who I was supposed to be, but not from some text outside of the Old Testament scriptures, right dead center in it. Because you didn't like what it said, and so you changed it. You just cut out a piece that you didn't want. And therefore you missed who I am. In Mark 11, the beginning of it is the triumphal entry. So, so Jesus is, is coming to Jerusalem and, and they're accepting him as king. And so if you look in verse 9, and those who went before and those who followed Jesus, Jesus is riding in on a donkey, there's a huge party going on and, and people are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. They're quoting scripture. They're quoting Psalm 118. They get it right, right? This is what is happening. Jesus is the Davidic king. He's the promised one who's, who God is, is going to establish his throne forever, right? Don't they get it right? Don't they get it right? I don't think so. Look at Mark 12 and what Jesus says. In the next chapter. So Jesus begins to teach here in chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. This is verse 1 of chapter 12. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. This is about the land of Israel and, and the people of Israel. God has entrusted something to them and he sends them prophets and they reject them. In verse 4, again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Jesus talking about himself in this parable. Finally, the owner of the vineyard sent his beloved son saying, 
they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. He is the one who is going to inherit all things. Come, let us kill him and inherit the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Hey Jesus, what are you doing, man? These people just accepted you as king. They're welcoming you in to rule over you and you tell them this crazy story? Hey guys, that was nice. You're going to kill me. I'm sorry, what Jesus? Why does he do this? Look at verse 10. He says, have you not read this scripture? Jesus, I think, not only is he funny, as we found out in Luke 24, he's kind of a rhetorical genius. You know what psalm he's about to quote to them? Psalm 118. Psalm 118, he quotes this, but it's a psalm that they already quoted, but they left out a little piece of it. They wanted to welcome the king in his glory, but they didn't want this to happen. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had, a whole, he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. You know what part they didn't want? They wanted the, the coming king to be there. They wanted the king in his glory. They wanted to rule. They wanted to overthrow their oppressors. But they didn't want that person to be rejected. And yet here in Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They wanted the glory of the kingdom apart from the suffering of the cross. They wanted to accept the king without him being crucified. Remember, this is the temptation of Satan to Jesus. I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. Just don't go to the cross. I'll give it to you all right now if you just worship me. Jesus knows he has to go to the cross. And so they created a mythology about what the Messiah was going to do. He doesn't have to suffer to enter into his glory. He just enters his glory. He's going to come and throw off the oppressor. But that's not Rome. It's the enemy himself. Sin is to be conquered. But they created a mythology from the biblical text because they didn't like what it said. They had already suffered for hundreds of years. They wanted a king who was not going to lead them into more suffering and tell them to take up their cross and die. They wanted to be freed. The temptation for us is to do the same thing. To create a mythology from the text where we hear only what we want to hear and we leave out the parts that feel wrong to us. That feel bad for us. And in many ways, you are dependent upon the teachers in your church to lead you into truth. To lead you into a right way of reading the text. And I believe reading the text as a story is the way to do that. And so they created, here it is, a mythology, a myth, a false narrative about who the Messiah was. And so that when he showed up, they did not recognize what he was supposed to do. And so for us, when we look at the world, when we look at the text, and we look back up and we see where God is at work, if we have created our own narrative for who God is supposed to be, instead of who he has revealed himself to be, we will not see him at work, we will not be able to join him. And so that's why I love that part in that song, that we need to constantly remind ourselves of the one true story. There's a whole bunch of false narratives out there. Anybody in marketing here? Nobody in marketing? That person who doesn't have a head right now is waving their hand. You're in marketing. You have a very powerful gift in marketing. I think. When you watch commercials, you know what they're doing? They're telling you a story. When you see advertisements, they're telling you a story about who you're going to be. I mean, have you ever watched uh, commercials about like washing clothes? And uh, apparently, if you just buy gain, you're going to have the most incredible life you've ever had in your life. Right? I mean, just this beautiful... I mean, they're telling, you, don't even, you don't even hardly know that they're telling you a story, but you know what's going to make your life right? Not Jesus. Gain detergent. Or maybe it's Tide. I don't know, but man, here's my Savior. The life I'm looking for, it's, it's right there. Right? And the most powerful advertising that happens out there is not laundry detergent, necessarily, but it's more about your phone. It's not just a status symbol, but it gives you access to all kinds of power. And so there are narratives about who you are as a human, and you're not really fully human unless you have this product, right? And there are good ways of marketing that, there are things that can be marketed in a way that actually serve us as humans, and there are ways to 
do marketing that actually detract from our humanity. But they, they don't just say, here's what our product does and here's a bullet point list. Sometimes that can be compelling. They create a beautiful narrative about who you're going to be as a result of having this. Why? Because we love stories. And they create a whole world in which their product is what you need to be fully human. We're drawn to these stories. And so what is it about the scriptures that allows us to, that teaches us, that corrects us, that rebukes us, that trains us in righteousness to where we can hear these false narratives and know which ones to cling to, know how to cling to them, which ones to leave to the side? How do we correct these mythologies? Well, I'm going to give an example. And I'm going to try to go through this quickly because the hour is late and 90% of you are asleep. Perhaps with your eyes open, but you're still asleep. I want to talk about work. What are the mythologies that we believe about work? What are the narratives that we believe about it? And then what is true from the scriptures? And I want to use this not as a holistic thing that combats all of those things about work, nor as a holistic thing that combats all those things in your life, but it's a model to be able to use to analyze the rest of your life in every area of life. So there's tonight's big idea. Oh, I need to keep pointing in the wrong direction. So how God equips, he teaches the story of scripture and trains us in righteousness. And so that's what I've been talking about. We need to combat these narratives. Then the other side is he corrects Ms. and rebukes sin. And so I've taken these things and kind of combined them. Teach the story, correct myths, uh, rebuke sin and train in righteousness. So teaching the story trains you for righteousness, correcting the mythologies, rebukes the sin that comes from them. So what are the myths? And I'm going to call these impoverished views about faith and work. Now, here's the thing, and uh, kids are really good at this, I think. You realize the best lies are not the opposite of the truth, right? They're an imitation of it. And so most of these myths sound good. Lies sound good, right? I mean, when the enemy shows up to, to Eve in the garden, he doesn't say, I'm going to tell you the exact opposite of what God said. I'm going to ask you a series of questions that maybe slightly twist what's happening to where you end up in a wrong place and you take the fruit and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, despite the fact that you've been given every seed-bearing plant in the garden, except for this one. I'm going to focus your attention down on just this one. He's crafty. And so the lie is it's just an imitation of the truth. It's not the opposite of the truth. And so here's the first myth I think we believe about faith and work. Work is a necessary evil. Anybody felt like this before? Yes, you can raise your hand. It's okay. Nobody's ever thought that. Okay, good. What does this mean? It means... Uh, you know, well, you know why we think this? Uh, because the curse is real, right? And so we go to our work and, and it's tiresome and it's, it's laborious. Our, our bosses aren't great. It's always the boss's fault, right? Our bosses aren't great and so we suffer at work and that's a very real thing. And so we start to think that the work itself is evil, but that's not it. Do you see how that's a twisting of the truth? It's not that the work itself is evil. Work is good, I think, but... Our experience of it can be a suffering within it, and so we'd start to think that our work itself is evil, but it's, it's necessary because I've got to make money so I can feed my kids and do those things. And those are all wonderful things to make money, to feed your kids, and there are scriptures about that. But it's not a necessary evil. It is a good thing. The reason I think it's good is because God gave it as a gift before the fall. And so he, before sin entered into the world, he created Adam and he planted him in the garden to work the ground and to till the soil. It was a good gift that now sin has corrupted. But it is good. It's not a necessary evil. It is a good that you can worship God with. So, and I'm going to unpack the truths here in a little bit more, but that's one thing. Work is a necessary evil. It's just what I have to do, but it's not actually good. Uh, another myth is work provides a platform to be influential with the gospel. Now, this sounds pretty good, right? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we try to get a promotion so that, so that we can then share the gospel from a higher platform? More people will hear it. And kind of the extreme version of this is the athlete who wins the national championship or the Super Bowl, and they get to the interview, and they say, so uh, how do you feel? I just want to give thanks to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's great. That's great. But what happens when you don't win the Super Bowl? You never make it to that platform. 
you're working up in your job and, and your vision of work is, the idea is, uh, I've gone to school so I can get this job so I can work up the corporate ladder so that I can influence the people around me, but what if you never get the promotion? Is that all it was? Did you fail in God's mission because you didn't gain the platform that you thought? And so God looks at you and disappointed at you in your work? It sounds good, but in the end it's impoverished. Your work can't just be a platform to share the gospel from a position of influence. What about this? Work merely provides a context to evangelize, right? So I'm not waiting necessarily to get the platform, but I'm interacting with all these people every day, and the reason I go to work is not actually for the work itself. I mean, it's work. It's kind of a necessary evil, but I can make my work good if I just share the gospel with people at work, and that's the goal. Well, that's not bad either in and of itself. Sharing the gospel with people that you interact with is, is a good thing. How many of you feel like you're super gifted at sharing the gospel? Right? And so if this is your view of work, you're operating out of something that you are not gifted in and you feel shame when you don't do it. Work has to be more about this. Now, there will be opportunities as you develop relationships with people to share why you might, maybe you do business practices differently or, or uh, maybe you, have, uh, you run a free Uber service and somebody hops in your car and you share the gospel with them and you talk about different religions. <laughs> maybe there's somebody in here who does that sort of thing. And what, what, a, what a great opportunity that is, but work can't be wholly about that. And, and if you're not gifted in evangelism, then... Man, is, is that all my work amounts to? Something that I end up trying to do that I can't really do that well and I just feel shame all the time? Surely work can't be that. Sounds good, but it's a myth. It's impoverished. And then lastly, work is the most important thing in life. Kind of the other side of all this stuff. And there's kind of this uh, weird, dark twisted mix that can happen. We can think that it's a necessary evil at the same time that we think it's the most important thing in our lives. Man, I got to do this, and yet my identity is wrapped up in being a hard worker. I just get things done. I, I, do, I put in more hours than anybody, any of my colleagues. And climbing that corporate ladder, it's not about a platform. It's just, this is what I do, and this is who I am, and this is my identity, and, and I don't need rest. It's not what I need. Sabbath? No. Who needs that? Those people are lazy. And so your entire identity is around success at work. Now, does God want you to be excellent in your work? Sure. Does he also want you to rest and make sure that you spend time with your family when you can? Yes. But if this is the center, then anything that's good outside of work, if that's the most important thing in your life, it is taking you away from the most important thing in your life. And what you're going to see is you're going to see your relationships outside of that crumble. They're going to unravel. Not immediately, because that wouldn't be tempting enough. But slowly chip away at the most important relationships in your life. So is work good? Yes. Is it ultimate? No. So these are some myths that we believe. Do you see how they all sound good? And at any given point, we can believe any of these or all of these about our work. This is true for the for the student who's in elementary school, middle school, high school, or college, or grad school, or a PhD program, maybe a postdoc, or in the office, or at home, that your work is just about being successful there in the home with your kids. We talked about parenting a lot in the workshop this afternoon, and your identity being wrapped up in your success there. And at the end of the day, one thing that you have to hold on to in any of this stuff is you can work as hard as you possibly can. The end fruit that you see is not always up to you. That promotion is not determined by you. That raise is not determined by you. Whether or not people see your success is not determined by you. Whether or not you're good at sharing the gospel is not determined by you. The gospel fruit that you see, even if you share the gospel consistently with those people, their coming to salvation is not up to you. You have to be able to have a view of work where you work and you leave the end to God. And trust Him in that. And so these are impoverished views of work. So how do we combat that with the truth? How does the story that we know about Scripture, what does it tell us that is true about work? Work is a good gift from God. So what if instead of operating out of that, here's what I work, we, we begin with work is a good gift from God. And we get that exactly from where I already said. It was given to us before the fall. 
And if those charts I put up there were anywhere near correct, yes, we will do work through the curse and under it, but there's hope that God works in the midst of it if our work is connected to Jesus. So there's a good gift from God that we will suffer, but we can suffer well in our work. We can have joy in our work. And how does that happen? Well, God sends us to our work. Here's one thing that that you need to connect to with the Luke thing. He sends the disciples to Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, the ends of the earth. If you're asking, well, if God is sending me somewhere, where is he sending me? He's sending you where you already are. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. That's because you never thought about yourself having been sent. You already have been sent. You don't just happen to be where you are. God has placed you here. And if you want to know, if you want to do ministry to, to the ends of the earth and you want to do missions to the ends of the earth and you're in conversation with a missions agency for that, guess what? You can stop the conversation. You just walk out the door and there you are. And so your workplace, you've been sent there by God to do good work as a good gift from him. If you're at home, you've been sent to that place by God. He sends you. Every, every day that you wake up, you are sent there by God with a mission. And he has given you work there to do that is good. If you're at a school, he sends you there every day. You don't just happen to be where you are. He is sending you there. God gifts us for our work. God gifts us for our work. Some of the places you've ended up, you've ended up there because we tend to think of spiritual gifts just as those things that uh, are like, uh, I'm going to speak in tongues or I'm going to do some miraculous healing. But you realize like spiritual gifts include within Romans and Ephesians and 1 Corinthians things like administration. You ever think of administration as, man, I need the spirit for administration. I do because I'm terrible at it. And so when I see people who are gifted that way and they think, ah, I just kind of have a ho-hum job to do this, I'm like, no, 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 no. Trust me, God gave that to you. I've tried really hard to be gifted at administration and I just don't have it. And what that allows me to do is operate out of my weakness and say, I actually need you as a part of the body of Christ. But we tend to think of these things that are just kind of, oh, I just naturally do those things well, not as gifts from the Spirit. Let's say that they're not gifts from the Spirit. As you look at, at people outside of the people of God and they don't have the Spirit, but they seem to have some gifts. You do realize who created those people, right? God did. And so he created you with natural gifts. He created you with supernatural gifts. But all these things are gifts from God. And where you are, he has gifted you to do that. And so part of all this, I wonder if one little thing might change our perspective on our work every day. If this is true, which I think it is. Work is a good gift from God. God sends us to our work and he gifts us for it. So here's this wonderful gift he's given us to work where we are. He sends us there and then he gives us good gifts to be able to operate well in that arena. What if we woke up every day and we just said, Lord, I thank you for the gift of work. I thank you that you've sent me to this place. And I thank you that you have gifted me to do this. Thanksgiving will change your heart toward your work. My kids are terrible at being grateful. I don't know where they get it from. It's probably from me. But have you ever thought about this? I'm sure if you're a parent you have. You, realize, you do realize how much you do for your kids, yes? Kids, do you realize how much your parents do for you? The answer is just say yes, even if you don't know. Do a ton, and yet... Thanksgiving is just not a natural response. You know what is a natural response apparently for kids? Complaining about everything. And you know why that's so frustrating as a parent? Because you're like, do you have any idea all the stuff that I do for you? All the time. If I, didn't ex- if I weren't here right now, you would not exist. Literally. You wouldn't exist. And you certainly would have continued to exist. And yet, you're complaining because I got you the wrong flavor candy? You wanted blueberry and I got you strawberry? And now you're having a meltdown? And so we've tried to do this at our dinner table. 
We've tried several different things to cultivate Thanksgiving. We'll do highs and lows. We'll talk about what the best part of our day was, what the lowest part of our day was. That inevitably ends up just complaining about the lowest part of our day. So we're like, okay, let's just cut that out. I mean, lament is good, but well, we don't need to complain all the time. We went from that to, to saying, we're going to name three things that we were thankful for from today. And if you want to have joy restored to your work, I wonder if you could pray one, just a prayer of thanksgiving before you go. And at the end of your day, try to look back. And even if they are the tiniest things, say, God, are there three things I can be thankful for for today? Because you've given me this as a good gift. You've sent me there with a purpose. And you've gifted me to do this. And then finally, God equips us. No, that's not finally. God equips us for good works. So, and all this that he sent us to, the purpose that we're sent for, the reason that I'm adding that to it is, it's not just that there is work to do there, there are good works to do there. And if you put the, your work under the category of good works, then his gifting you for it, sending you there, and giving it to you as a good gift, is part of the good works that you were created in Christ Jesus to do. There's a beautiful text that, in Ephesians 2, uh, 1 to 10, and talks about being saved by grace and not by our works. And it ends with, you are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus, created to do good works that he prepared in advance for you. Some of those good works are your work. I'm certain of it. And so he has prepared good things for you to do there. So not only wake up thankful for the gifts that you have, but wake up in anticipation that God is going to work through you at work. And that you can see where that is. So wake up thankful and wake up in anticipation of God doing something through you there. And this is finally. Wake up thankful. Wake up in anticipation of what he's going to do. And remember your identity. Part of the significance of the workshop today is, is we don't know how to operate in the world unless we know who we are. And one of the things that I'm certain of is this last sentence. Maybe you're not going to be thankful. Maybe you're going to forget to anticipate that God's going to be there. But if you can grab hold of this, then I think your work will change. You will change. And that is this. God delights in our work as a parent delights in a child. It's... It's such an interesting thing. We can get frustrated by our kids and, and all those sort of things. But if you're a parent in the room, have you ever just been overjoyed just watching your kids? Just watching them. Just doing what they do, whatever it is. Have you ever just had pure joy watching your children? Or maybe in a friendship, you watch somebody do that they were just created to do. And you're like, this is just awesome. I love it. I love to watch them do it. Have you ever been rejoiced like that over you? Somebody rejoiced like that over you? Have you ever felt what that feels like? Even if it's just been a brief moment in time. Uh, I've mentioned my children a lot. Or I can walk through them and talk about just times that I rejoice over them. And it's not because they're accomplishing something wonderful. They're just, I can just tell they're doing what they were created to do. My son loves to run. My oldest son, Sam. He's, he's about to turn 10. Now, I don't know why he loves to run. You can look at me and in about a half second say, Mark, you don't love to run, do you? <laughs> the answer to that is no. And he, even when I played sports and was like in semi-shape, I still didn't like to run. I wanted to run in short bursts. I wanted to hit somebody and then I wanted to stop and then do it again. I didn't, I didn't want to just go run for no reason. It doesn't make any sense to me. I, I've tried to take up running. I go running, and after a while, I'm like, why, why am I running? Uh, my legs hurt. I'm out of breath, and there's no ball that I'm chasing. I'm just out here running for no reason. Allegedly, I'm going to live longer if I do it, but I don't, I don't know about that. That sounds like a mythology to me. And my wife's not a runner either. She, she did ballet for 17 years, and so she's in shape, I guess, but she didn't like, she goes out running. She does the same thing. She's like, why, why are we doing this? We try to do it together. Like, well, why are you running? I don't know, because uh, you're running. Well, I don't know why I'm running. Like, what's going on? But he just loves to run. We would, uh, part of it is when, when I was doing campus ministry at Princeton, uh, I had a Bible study with the cross-country and track guys, and they were very, very fast. 
But so we would go watch them, and this was when Sam was young, and he got this vision, and he loved to watch them run. And so we would walk around uh, downtown Princeton, and we would go to the plaza outside of the public library there, and my wife and I, we would sit at the table and chat, and he would say, Daddy, can I play country guys? I was like, uh, I don't know what that means. We're not in Alabama, man. Like, we're, we're in New Jersey. I don't know what country guys mean. He's like, no, no, just like, can I just run around in circles? I was like, yes, but we're going to get you checked out tomorrow, see what's wrong with you. And so he would literally just run in circles around the plaza, nonstop. Just loved to run. And here's the thing about that. The joy that was on his face. Kimberly and I loved, and sometimes we just stop talking, and we just watch him. He's not accomplishing any big goal. And yet the joy that we had just watching him doing what he loved to do was immeasurable. And now that he's continued to run, he's 10 years old, he runs cross country, and there's, in Memphis, like elementary school cross country is a thing. So strange. There are 600 kids who run a cross country race every week. That is my, it's like this huge event. You've got to get there an hour earlier. You can't get a parking space and make it to the thing. There's 300 boys who run. He's finishing in the top 15 to 20. But it's not because he's just trying to finish in the top 15. He's just doing what he loves. And there's nothing better than even if he gets beat in that last stretch to watch him just dig it out. Just give everything that he can. And here's the question he asks afterwards. Daddy, did you see me run? Yeah, I did. And Sam, it was awesome. Then we hug, and that's it. He, He didn't win the championship. He got some, he always gets a ribbon that says, you finished, way to go. So did 300 other people, right? But it's just the sheer joy of watching him do what he was created to do. And in your work, every day, God watches you and he just delights in what you do. Molly is different from Sam. That's our oldest daughter. She's, she's kind of the performer, the theatrics. She, uh, we were concerned about her going to school. We were like, I just don't know if she can sit down at all. She's going to, the teacher going to be doing something like, you know, like, do that sort of thing. And so she loves to just, she'll make up a show. And she's like, Daddy, just can, can you watch me perform my show? And I'm like, you know what, I sure can. And she does something insane, right? But she just loves to do it. And I think she's probably going to be a good singer. She's going to be an amazing actress. And good Lord, her laugh is so beautiful. And there are times where I just sit back and watch her. And you can see her mind going. You see her smiling. You can hear her laughing. And I just sit back. She's not accomplishing any goal. She's not getting a promotion. It's not about an A on a test. It's just she's doing what she was created to do, and I delight in it. And she says, Daddy, did you see me? And I say, yes. And then there's Sarah. Sarah's our lone introvert. Sun starts to set. She's like, yep, time to go to bed. (laughs) The rest of them are like, it's midnight. Like, brah. She loves to, because she has this interesting coloring pattern. You can always tell when she's colored something, not because it's outside the lines, but it's like this block thing, and she just wants me to see it. And so she loves to sit by herself and just read a book, even though she can't really read yet. She just flips through the pages. She loves to color. And she loves to write me little notes that don't make any sense. They're just an amalgamation of letters. And she's like, Daddy, this says that I love you. Do you like it? I do. There's nothing better than just watch Sarah be by herself, coloring, writing a nonsense letter, doing whatever, reading a book even though she can't read. And yet there's just this joy on her face. I delight in that. Now, Andrew is different. He's the Tasmanian devil guy. I, I, talked about, I think I talked about that earlier. But Andrew, is he's got this wild imagination and... Uh, he likes to, he says, Mommy, can I be super duper? What that means is, I don't know, <laughs> his mind is so weird. He likes to put on gloves. He likes to take a scarf and pretend it's like a cape. And then he runs like this to the house. But when he, like, he, when he loops around the house and he's, and he's flying by and he's coming toward me, 
he sometimes he runs into things because you know what he's doing? He's not looking ahead. He's here I am, and he's like, <laughs> and he's crying. So the moment's very brief with Andrew, but that picture of his joy, just pure joy on his face, as he runs by and he's thinking, is is he watching me? Are you watching me? Can you see me? Do what I love to do. It's there for a brief moment, and he smashes his face into the wall. But it's there. There's a lot of smashing, but that, that image is burned into my mind. And he's not accomplishing anything wonderful. He's just doing something he loves to do. And he's got one question on his mind. Did my parents see me do it? And did it bring him joy? And so your work has been given to you as a good gift. Your father has sent you there. And he has prepared good things for you to do. And he's equipped you for that. And when you do that, when you wake up with thanksgiving in your heart that God has given you this good thing, you wake up in anticipation that he's going to do something. And you do your best at work for him. It's not about sharing the gospel with your colleague. It's not making sure that you're building a platform and accomplishing something good and getting that promotion. He looks at that. He just looks at you just doing what he created you to do. And he says, man, this brings me joy. And if you can adopt that mindset for work, I guarantee you, your work will become an act of ministry. There will be a joy and gratitude that overflows. And even if nobody else sees it, your heavenly father does. Let that sink in. And if you're wondering about where your identity is in there, it's in Christ. Uh, I think Charles read the text earlier from Colossians that everything you do, don't do it for but do it as if you're doing it for the Lord. Why? Because when you work for him, you are building up a reward and inheritance that he will give you. He sees your work and he delights in it. So don't believe the mythologies about your work, that it's a necessary evil, that it's just about building a platform, it's just about evangelism. He's given you this good work, and he delights in it. So here's tonight's big idea. God equips us for every good work, and he delights in it. That's the end of the slideshow. All right, so now let's go into a time of prayer. I think it's natural here just to, to sit with that for now and just... Uh, whatever is the best posture of prayer for you, if it's just sitting there, that's fine. If you want to kneel for a second, we're going to spend 10 to 15 minutes uh, just thinking about uh, what does it look like for God to delight in you as, his fa- as, as your Father. And I wonder if you could spend some time doing the things that we just talked about, particularly with respect to your work, or maybe in an area where you just don't feel like this is ministry for me. Can you thank God? Are there a few things from today or in your life that God has given you that you say, God, I thank you for this? And as you go through that list, then say, God, I anticipate that you're going to be at work through this. And then an amazing prayer to pray is, God, I want to feel your joy as I work. So I'm thankful. I'm in anticipation of you working. And let me feel the joy that you have as a father over your child. Just spend some time there.
As you continue to pray, I might just read a couple of texts of Scripture to guide your prayer. Uh, continue to be focused on this concept of uh, enjoying the love that God has for us as His children. Philippians 2 is, is a beautiful text, and uh, there's a Christ hymn that is there. It talks about the humility of Christ and pouring Himself out and being found in the likeness of man, he becomes a servant, becomes obedient to death on a cross, and he receives a name that is above every name to the glory of God the Father. And then verse 12 in Philippians 2 says, Therefore, my beloved, therefore, my beloved, those who are loved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. the Lord to, to reveal to you and as you kind of reflect on who he is and his love for you just to ask him straight up Lord what are you calling me to do what are you calling me to do in response to these truths what, what do I need to, to cut out of my life what do I need to change in my life what relationship do I need to invest in what are you calling me to do in my work what are you calling me to do in my marriage and my friendships Lord, what are, you, what are you calling me to do?
Now turn your prayers to uh, your church body as a whole and, and ask those same questions. What are you calling us as a church to do? Where is it that, that you're at work, Lord, that, that we see you but we haven't joined, we haven't understood what you're calling us to? Maybe there's somebody uh, that, you, that comes to mind in your church and, and you want to pray for that person. Pray for that person. Lift them up in prayer. Build them up. Maybe you know that they're struggling with something. You just simply want to pray that the Lord would encourage them, that would give them hope, that, that they would have this vision of God making all things new, and, and that would give them hope to, to endure what they're going through. If there's somebody like that, pray for that individual. If you want to pray for the church as a whole, do that. But spend time now praying for your church.